I think we'll just spend a few moments, I mean a few moments. Um, I guess most people are aware of Jonathan and Gemma's situation. Um, there's been no updates, but she was going in at 8 o'clock this morning. Has anyone heard anything since 8 o'clock this morning? No. Uh, is everybody aware of the situation? No. Okay, well, as you know, Gemma, the baby's due on the 22nd of August. Um, but she had a scan a fortnight ago, and then she had a more recent one, and in that fortnight the baby hasn't grown at all, so they're a little bit worried. So they were taking her in to hopefully have a normal birth, but if not, they were going to induce her because the baby's quite small. Have I got that right? I don't understand these things. I, I, I read the, Ivy, read, Ivy reads the prayer chain and sort of half explains it to me. And, but I think that's more or less it. Uh, so obviously there's concern. And... Uh, I think just a few moments, if we just, just bow before the Lord and, and each of us just offer up a prayer for John and Gemma um, and the baby, that all will go well and then I'll just close it and then we'll get on with business. Eh? Yes, Father, as we have raised up uh, John and Gemma before you this evening, we just leave them in your hands. And what better hands could they be in? And Father, we just, just thank you. Thank you for your love and care. Just uh, quieten the anxiety that is obviously surrounding the family at this time. Again, through your Holy Spirit, just... Help them to put their trust fully in you and that they may indeed experience your peace, your love, your joy, your mercy. Father, into your hands. Amen. Okay, still in Exodus. Well, I say still in Exodus, right at the beginning of Exodus, really, aren't we still? Only up to chapter 8. Last week we missed out because um, poor old Danny Chips had um, deleted his emails and he didn't know what reading he'd been given, so we didn't get around to doing the Nile turn into blood. <laughs> so we're moving on and we're now, um, we will just look at that really bit. I mean, all the, all the uh, plagues more or less come together anyway. Um, but we'll start from chapter 8 and we're doing verses 1 through. 
two, if we get that far. I promise to be finished by half past. I won't tell you which hour, uh, but I will be finished by half past something. Um, but uh, chapter 8 and verse 1, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. I'm a little bit worried about this because there is no um, explanation uh, that the Nile actually turned back to water. Um, it got turned into blood, um, and after seven days, we assume it was still blood. Um, I don't know. That's something, that's, that's a mystery. So you can mark that one down so that when you get to glory, you can ask Moses. All right? But there we go. After seven days, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom, onto your bed, into your houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs, frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave it to you the honor I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile tomorrow pharaoh said Moses replied it will be as you say so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God the frogs will leave you and your houses your officials and your people they will remain only in the Nile and after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. I won't read the whole 32 verses because then I'll have to close because it will be half past. Just as well that Tor 2 weren't in, <coughs> 2 weren't in charge of clearing up the mess, wasn't it, really? Because these frogs would have hung around for months. Can you imagine? I can remember years ago we lived in a masonette and the, the old lady downstairs, we, we sort of had a, a garden, half a garden and she had the other half and she had an old bomb shelter in her uh, garden and one summer evening we looked out and it looked as though there was water but it hadn't been raining but there was a shimmering like water over the whole of this area which must have been at least as big as that area of, of the chairs there and it was shimmering and it was flying ants there was millions horrible horrible especially when someone went out and clapped their hands and they, were trying, they, all, start, they all started flying up but can you imagine this? I mean, these, these, these are plagues. 
that God is bringing upon Egypt. And I want you to just think for a moment of two verses. Just bear them in mind as we go through this. There's a verse in Job 41.11. And God says to Job, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And then in Exodus 5, 2, which we did a few weeks back, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? What a feat, or fate I should say, maybe, awaited Moses. You know, God calls him out, and one of the first things he says to him, look, I want you to go and lead the people out of Egypt, but Pharaoh's not going to let them go. What an encouragement. I want you to go, I want you to bring them out, but Pharaoh's not going to let them go. Pharaoh's heart was hard from the start. And it's very true of most tyrants and people like that. They have no desire. They have no desire to be loved or to love. You've only got to think in terms of recent history, haven't we? People like Hitler and Stalin, Mugabe... Um, Idi Amin, no desire to be loved. They didn't want to be loved. They, 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 they had the power, and that's really all they wanted. They, did, they didn't love, they didn't want to be loved. And Pharaoh was that kind of guy, and that's how he'd been, he'd been brought up. He, he, was, he was in charge. He was in charge. And this was a massive empire. They were the, they were the, the empire of the day. Egypt, every other country sort of looked and bowed down really to Egypt. They were the, 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 the big guns. And, they, you know, poor old Moses, he gets he get straight out. He's been 40 years shepherding. And God says, I want you to do this, but it ain't going to be easy. But isn't it strange? Because if you go on a chapter or two into chapter 9, Pharaoh was in this position. He was in this position. And his heart was hardened. But it was all done by God. Because God told Pharaoh, I've raised you up. I have raised you up for this very purpose. To prove to you who I am. Remember that verse? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Who is this Lord that I should obey him? But I have raised you up to prove to you who I am. That's why these plagues and this whole story here is given in such detail. Wouldn't it have been so easy? In fact, just before that verse, when uh, God spoke to Pharaoh, he'd already said, I could have in a moment have sent a plague and wiped out the whole nation with just one plague. But God had raised this nation up for one purpose, to prove who he was. We looked at the plague, didn't we? Well, we didn't look at the plague last week of the Nile being turned into blood. But it was worshipped. The Nile was worshipped by the Egyptians. They looked down on other nations that had to rely on rain for their crops because the Nile irrigated it all. They, they They had abundance of crops all year long. And they actually named three gods 
for the river Nile? They worship the Nile. Do you ever see some of these documentaries where people wash in the Ganges in India? Filthy river. <laughs> but because it's a holy river, they can wash in it and it makes them feel good. Goodness knows how many of them die of disease from it, but there you go. But they worshipped it because it was, it was really the Nile was a source of life to Egypt. If the Nile had dried up, the nation wouldn't have existed. But God attacked it. God attacked it, he changed it, didn't he? Just a, just a, a, a touch of the staff and the, and the river and all the canals all around it, all the pots that the people had put water in were all turned to blood. You know, I was reading somewhere, I think it was on, online, when I was sort of looking through this, some of the excuses that people have made up to, to say that these were just natural phenomena. Pretty pathetic, most of them. But really they are natural phenomena because the, the, very often the Nile did turn to, to, to red. Very often frogs did come out, but not on this kind of, of, of level. But you see, the Nile and the next one, which is the frogs, and we're skipping over these pretty quick, but the frogs are another uh, animal that was worshipped by the Egyptians. So I think it was uh, uh, the, the, the goddess... Yeah, the goddess Hecate. And, uh, they, they always depicted her with the head of a frog because that was, she, was the, she was the god of fertility because frogs used to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce. Another god that God attacked to prove who he was. I have raised up this nation. I have raised you up to this position. For what reason? To prove who I am. And another god got attacked. But the thing with those first two plagues, of course, and I know I'm bringing calls to Newcastle here, they were replicated by the magicians. I don't know if that is a great, I don't know if that is a great translation. Somebody said that they were, could well have been the, the, the sort of scientists of the day. But it's not unusual, is it? Not unusual, because you see, that causes some anxiety and, and, and argument against Christians and non-Christians when this sort of thing happens. Well, look, you know, God did that, but then the magicians did it as well. The big difference was, of course, that God had control of it. The magicians didn't because that poor old Pharaoh had to ask Moses to ask God to get rid of the frogs because his own magicians couldn't get rid of them. God had control of the situation. But what we must remember, and I think very often we, 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 we forget these sort of things, but Satan and his minions do have miraculous powers. Two Thessalonians two verses nine to ten talks about it, doesn't it? Talks about the um, the power that Satan has and but how limited how limited it is. I'll find it in a minute. I should have looked it up before. Yeah? Two, two, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 10. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. 
They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It was possible. These magicians did produce frogs. They could turn water into blood. Because they worshipped evil spirits. And we must never forget that there is always, underneath the surface, there is always activity in the spiritual world. We seem to forget that. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And we do very often forget. We forget that Satan has power, limited though it be. But he has been given power. And we must never forget it. But let me make this clear. You need to be more afraid of God than you do be afraid of Satan. You need never fear Satan. No matter what his power. God is the one to be feared because he has control of a situation. He is the one in charge. These, these, these magicians are replicating but they can't do much about it. So God has control. The frogs and the, and the Nile have come and gone. There's a quotation. Alleviation of human suffering is no part of the program of the devil or his agents. That can only come from Yahweh through, believing, through the believing cry of his servants. Satan has no way. He's not interested in alleviating pain and suffering. Just the same as, as, as the tyrants of the day and through the ages have never been concerned about pain and suffering of people. It was only them. I wonder if you've ever wondered, I, I, it's a little bit off track I suppose, but there's little things that, when you start to prepare a sermon, little things that you notice. I did notice when... Moses complained to God about being used for this, this purpose. How he said that, you know, I, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. And uh, God said, okay, well, here's your brother. He'll help you out. It's amazing through this story how little Aaron actually says. <laughs> I mean, we read that Moses and Aaron went before God, but Moses spoke most of the speaking. How God gave him the strength, how suddenly that... Uh, that feeling of inadequacy, when he, when he obeyed God, that feeling of inadequacy disappeared. And, and there he really did take charge of it all. But I wonder with these, with these um, things, I mean, the Nile and the frogs, these are the little things that I picked up, just a little interesting bit. The, the Nile and the frogs, Aaron and Moses went before Pharaoh and warned him they were coming. The third... The third um, plague, the gnats or lice, they didn't warn Pharaoh they were coming. Now the next two, which was the swarm of flies and the, the blight on the livestock, they went before Pharaoh and warned him they were coming. But the sixth plague, which was the boils, they never warned him. And then the seventh and the eighth, the hail and the locust, they went before him and warned him. But the darkness that covered the land, they didn't warn him. Nine plagues, I don't think there's any significance, but nine plagues broken into threes 
the third plague of every three, there was no warning. It just happened. God said, just reach out your staff. I said to Peter Glasgow this morning, any significance in the number three in scripture? He said, the only explanation I've got is it's one more than two and one less than four. So, <laughs> so, so I don't think there's any significance. But it's just, just these little things that you, I don't know, you, you, you pick up. And, um, you know, on the, after the first, after the first uh, plague, the scripture tells us that, that Pharaoh, um, had, his heart became hard. Do you remember God said to Moses, I will, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The first plague, Pharaoh's heart became hard. The second plague, he, he, he's hardened, he hardened his heart. The third plague, Pharaoh's heart was hard. The fourth plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Fifth plague, his heart was unyielding. The sixth plague, God hardened his heart. The seventh plague, Pharaoh's heart was hard. The eighth plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The ninth plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, we come to the crux of the matter now. Because the third plague was the one that did it for the magicians and the people who surrounded Pharaoh. Because when the gnats, the the NIV is gnats, in the authorised version it's lice. I don't know what you would prefer. If God said to you today I'm sending a swarm, you can choose. It's either gnats or lice. But whatever they were, they swarmed over the people and the livestock. Now, you remember, no doubt you remember from the book of Leviticus when God gave this, all these instructions about worship and entering into the, to the temple and, and all those things, how clean the priests had to be, how they had to wash, Aaron had to be absolutely clean and spotless, how the only offerings that could be bought before the, before the, um, for the sacrifice had to be without blemish. And yet here was all these people in Egypt covered in gnat bites or lice crawling all over their bodies, whichever translation you prefer to take. The livestock, the same. They couldn't worship. God had put a stop to their worship. They couldn't worship their gods. They were filthy, they were unclean. And it was then that the magicians turned to Pharaoh and said, oh, you know, this is the finger of God. This is beyond us. This is beyond us. But Pharaoh still hardened his heart. And you ask yourself, and it's very easy for us in, in, in hindsight, really, isn't it, when we look back. But, I mean, here was a man who was the king of the biggest empire. He wasn't about to lose face for anybody. And isn't that true when you watch the, the, the things, you know, when you watch TV and, and you, you see these, these people, you know, who rule the lands. They, they, the last thing they want to do is lose face. He couldn't back down now. He couldn't back down now. And yet, God was willing. I wonder, you know, God said right from the start, didn't he, to Moses, he said, you're going to bring your people out, but Pharaoh's not going to let them go. 
And God had brought him to that place so that he could prove who he was. But I wonder if at any time, you know, God gave him ten chances. Ten chances to obey him. And ten times he refused. Even on the last one, when, it, when the people did go, he still chased after them, didn't they? He didn't want to lose face ten times. Ten opportunities. Ten opportunities. And yet his heart got harder and harder. And in the end, and this is really frightening, isn't it? In the end, it was God who hardened his heart. The first few, the first few plagues, his heart was hard. Pharaoh hardened his heart, but when we get to the end, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's a God of unlimited mercy and grace, but I think I've said it before, he's not a God of unlimited patience. But how many times do you need? Ten times. And ten times Pharaoh got worse and worse and worse and more determined deceitful, saying, yes, I will let the people go. He tried to compromise by saying, well, okay, you can worship here in Egypt. How does it apply to us today? How many chances do people need when they hear the word of God? How many chances do they need to turn? And the thing is, people's hearts get hard. The more you say no the more difficult it is to say yes. You know, as, as, as we continue, I'll say we, as we continue in sin, which is quite simply disobedience to God, opportunities for us to repent and turn diminish. The more we resist, the harder it becomes. Those of us who have been around the block a few times have seen it so often. People who got so close and yet so far. I quote again, a man does not start gambling away his pay start gambling by gambling away his pay packet. It starts with continuing on in friendly betting as his heart hardens. A man does not start with shameful perversion. It starts with a magazine, a film clip or two, and his heart grows hard. A woman does not start addicted to alcohol. It starts with a little social drinking and her heart becomes hard. Does it really matter if I, you know, disobey God this once? Well, yes, it does, because if it doesn't matter once, then it doesn't matter twice. And then it won't matter three times, and it won't matter four times, and it won't matter five times. The call is to let the world go. Just as Pharaoh should have let the children of Israel go, the call is to let the world go. Repent. My favourite saying these days, repent the forgotten word of the 21st century church. No one talks of repentance anymore. I heard a sermon the other day and a guy spoke of the fruits of repentance. Do we ever do it? He was talking about baptism. He said we should see the fruits of repentance. And, and, and this, this is why it sticks with me, 
because this guy here will back me up. I say, as soon as somebody says they're a Christian, they should go through the water. But he said we should see the fruits of repentance rather than rush people through before they change their mind. Surely better for somebody to change their mind before they go through than afterwards. The fruits of repentance, we need to see them. We need to experience them. Because that's what salvation is all about. It's repentance, it's turning. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we say, no more. No more. Before my heart grows hard, no more. I'll turn. I don't want to make light of this, but the thing I can always remember years ago, I'm sure it was a London City Mission, he spoke about okey-cokey Christians. You remember last Sunday evening, Danny Chip spoke about them, the carnal Christians, with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Okey-cokey Christians. They put their right foot in, their left foot out, they're in, out, in, out, and they shake it all about. They don't know where they stand. They come when they feel good, they don't come when they feel bad. They praise God when they feel good, they don't praise God when they feel bad. can't compromise with God. You're either in or you're out. But the longer you leave it to go on, the harder your heart will become. (coughs) Just to finish, literally. Stubbornness and pride will send more people to hell than murder adultery, or any other despicable act you can imagine. Why? Because God can forgive all and any sinful act, but not if pride and stubbornness stand in the way. God can forgive anything and everything, but if, like Pharaoh, your pride and your stubbornness stand in the way, He can't. He can't do it. Not so much can't, because I suppose we shouldn't say that God can't do things, but he won't do it. But he'll give you every opportunity to put aside your, your stubbornness and your pride. It never ceases to amaze me when you, when you read and you hear of some of the despicable acts that people have, have, have committed over the years and even, even, well, even in this past week, I guess. God can forgive. The real difficulty is that most of those acts have been created by people whose hearts are so hard that they would not even think of asking for forgiveness. Because they have no desire to be loved or to love. It would be very easy to look back and say Pharaoh was a fool. Yes, maybe. But he really didn't care what he put his people through, did he? (coughs) Just to save face. I wonder what it is, maybe. If there's anything in your life that you know you, you you're thinking to yourself, oh, I, I I just can't do it. It'll be 
I can't, I can't admit that even to God. Don't let your pride and stubbornness stand in the way. Because God will hold that against you, but he won't hold what you've done or your sin against him. Because that's been forgiven. Jesus Christ did it, we celebrated it, didn't we? I'll finish there. I'll just close with a verse. If you'd just like to bow your heads before our Lord, and I'll just read this from from one Peter and uh, two Peter, sorry, and, and just revel really in these words to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you for being patient. God bless you. See you soon.